This episode is sponsored by Voyager and MyBookie. Stay tuned to hear more about them later in the episode. What is up, everybody? I am Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Today's guest is the co-founder of Nervos Network, a company that has taken the best aspects of both Bitcoin and Ethereum's protocols to develop a crypto ecosystem built on a layered blockchain. In other words, Nervos is helping fix all the isolation and disconnectedness in the, in the crypto space. More interesting, though, is our guest, Kevin, who's going to share what it's like to build a crypto community headquartered in China. I'm looking forward to learning more about government regulation in China and how that's affecting the crypto community. Kevin Wang, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking the time. Hey, how are you, Scott? Good to be here. I'm great, man. Thanks again. So before we get into the questions, once again, you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where twice a week I talk to your favorite personalities in the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, and politics. The show is powered by Blockworks Group, a media company with over 20 podcasts in their network. You can check them out at blockworksgroup.io. And if you like the podcast and you follow me on Twitter, you need to check out my website, join my newsletter, check out my YouTube. You can find all of that on the wolfofallstreets.io. So now to get into what's more important, I saw that you uh, live in Michigan, but the company works out, out of China. Is that accurate? Yeah, most of our teams uh, are located in China. I mean, most of the folks, um, the engineering, the R&D team is located in Hangzhou, China. So what is it like to, to work from the United States when your company is in China? Do you ever sleep? <laughs> <laughs> it just means you, you have meetings from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. and uh, sleep in the morning. <laughs> Wow. I mean, it seems nearly impossible. So what other challenges come from, you know, being geographically separated? Um, I think there are, there are many. Uh, our team, even, you know, the, the majority of the R&D team is in China, but we also have uh, members in uh, Europe, Japan, Australia, obviously the, you know, U.S., West Coast and East Coast. Um, so it's really worldwide team. And it's really, really difficult to schedule meetings. That's for one. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we try to do a lot of things, um, uh, you know, synchronously, not in meetings. Um, a lot of things should be written down. Um, yeah. And obviously um, there is the, you miss the, uh, you know, go to lunch together and, yeah. you know, the water cooler talks and everybody's missing that. that now though. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This year, 2020 is the year that the uh, water cooler died. I think so let's talk about exactly what you guys are doing because it's so interesting and so important. I mean, everybody obviously knows there's Bitcoin, there's Ethereum, <laughs> there's all these other changing coins, but it's, uh, complex to get them to actually talk to one another, work, work together or to find interoperability. So I know that's what you guys are focusing on. So can you give us sort of the just umbrella of exactly what you're doing and why it's so important? Yeah. So uh, happy to give uh, introduction on Nervous Network first. So uh, I think you said it very well, right? So we take the best from Bitcoin and Ethereum in the way that, um, you know, we're POW based um, public blockchain and uh, which is, you know, same as Bitcoin. And we are also, uh, you know, ledger structure wise, it's very much inspired by Bitcoin, which means uh, we use something called the UTXO model, uh, with, you know, transaction, unspent transaction outputs, and which is very different from Ethereum's account model. Um, so if you, you know, if you take Bitcoin and um, so when Ethereum came out, it, 
you know, added two things to Bitcoin, basically. Uh, one is scriptability. Uh, you can now write any programs, not just tracking, um, uh, you know, uh, money and, and accounts and who has how many coins. And the other thing that Ethereum does is it, it moved away from the UTXO model of Bitcoin and make it account uh, model. Um, uh, so data structure is different. So what we do is we also support scriptability, but we want to um, you know, keep the Nakamoto consensus and also the UTXO model, which is again, very inspired by Bitcoin. And um, so if you think about you know, from Bitcoin and you want to support multiple type applications, so one attempt is uh, you know, it's a generalized the Bitcoin protocol itself, right? And which, which is if you from the you know the old days, which is what color coin tried to do, which is what um, master coin tried to do in the early days, and but you know none of them really took off. So we took another attempt to generalize the Bitcoin protocol while keep the most part of Bitcoin, right? Um, instead of you know Ethereum smart contract model, so Ethereum it's it's like Coming from Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, you turn right, and then for Nervos, you turn left. Both ways are, you know, you can implement this rich, uh, rich functionality and sort of Turing complete scripting. Um, so, I mean, why do we do this, right? So, it has many benefits. Um, one benefit is, you know, what we really want to preserve is this um, econo economic model of Bitcoin, and then which enable Bitcoin to be a store value. Um, so if you think about this, the reason that Bitcoin is secure, one reason it can be store of value is that the network can provision more defense uh, or security as the price of the asset rises. So if Bitcoin goes up, I mean, Bitcoin has been going up recently, obviously, but if Bitcoin price doubles, then the miners income, because miners get fixed amount of Bitcoin per block, right? So miners income, automatically doubles, which means more miner will come and then you know, uh, try to make a profit and contribute to network security. Um, and this is automatic provision up and down uh, proportionally with the price. And um, for Ethereum, that's not the case because Ethereum, you can have many assets, right? So um, if, if, if miner's income increases only when ETH ETH value increases, so, um, but ETH has very little relationship with, uh, not direct relationship with the assets that Ethereum network carries, right? So minor income does not automatically provision up and down with the assets, with a total aggregate assets on the network. So yeah, so we try to do an economic model that can represent that relationship just like Bitcoin does. So that, and we also are committed to POW. So we want to be, uh, you know, think, think about Bitcoin store value. So we want to be store of non-monetary value, right? Not just monetary value like Bitcoin is, but store of, uh, you know, all type of crypto assets. So we envision in the future that uh, Nervos common knowledge work, common knowledge, common knowledge base, that's the name of our public blockchain, can be used for people to sort of park and store the most valuable assets. And obviously we, you know, create... Uh, scriptability, so you can do DeFi, you can do, um, you know, uh, DAP development, just like you can do on Ethereum, uh, but also be able to interrupt with, uh, with all other blockchains. And we can get into that a little bit too. It's very interesting that you're so committed to the Bitcoin model, which I 
respect and appreciate and that you're with proof of work because it seems like almost everything these days is kind of hot to build on proof of stake and to build mm-hmm. on Ethereum and everything is DeFi. But you just touched on something really important, which is that it's possible to do DeFi with proof of work and with the Bitcoin model, correct? Yeah, it is. Uh, and, you know, you can argue that uh, proof of work actually has some big challenges when it comes to DeFi, for example, right? Because for proof of work, um, proof of work itself, you can think about like a giant DeFi application because you deposit your, let's say you eat and you want to get some yield, right? And then that's sort of, um, it's like a money market. You park your money there and try to get some yield. Um, but this yield is, for the most part, um, uh, and you can delegate to other operators, it's mostly risk-free. Um, and then this will create an interesting dynamic where DeFi applications running on these you know, networks will have to be able to compete with this risk-free uh, yield return. Um, and then for, uh, the dep- the, for the stakers of you know, proof of stake, uh, for the native token, then you know, if there are more yield opportunities on the network, then people will unstake and then try to participate in DeFi which reduce the network security, right? Um, so there's that interesting dynamic there. And there's a lot of you know, papers and research that's been done in this area. Um, but again, we just haven't seen a proof of stake network uh, that has significant traction that's been running for a significant long of time to know that you know, all the issues, potential issues and all the challenges with it. Um, so, uh, you know, we chose proof of work because it's proven um, and it's proven with Bitcoin for more than 10 years. That makes a ton of sense. It's really interesting. So you're, you're, you find in this community that there's the Bitcoin maximalists and the Ethereum maximalists, and often they can't find a way to come together. In fact, not only can they not talk, they're just like enemies, right? I mean, they go at each other's throats and it's crazy, but you're finding a way to basically build something for both communities. Well, what is it like to be sort of in the middle of that toxic relationship? Um, yeah, I think it's good. I mean, we're, uh, you know, you talk to different people, right? You talk to different audiences because, you know, when we talk about proof of work, when we talk about, um, you know, Bitcoin-like consensus and, you know, security, then a lot of Bitcoin folks will be nodding. Uh, and then when we talk to developers about the ability to build apps, then it's more, you know, closer to Ethereum to, to draw the parallelism. So, yeah, so it really depends on different audiences and then they would appreciate, uh, you know, different features uh, about neurons. What about all the other protocols? I mean, uh, you know, is there a world where every single blockchain talks to one another and everything is interoperable and, you know, they can all work together? Or is it really that at some point, you know, one network or a few networks are going to shine and everything else is going to somewhat disappear into the, into the ether. Yeah. I think, uh, I definitely think there will be multiple blockchains interoperable in, in, into the future. And there are several, there are several reasons for this. Right. Um, so the first one is that, um, uh, the blockchains are all, you know, prioritized for different features and, um, and then, you know, because they use different VM, different virtual machine, they use different programming model and so on and so forth. So naturally you will see that um, a special use case would want to build the blockchain that's sort of tailored to them. And they're already seeing this, for example, you know, NFT 
uh, as a major use case, there are blockchains that's built just for that. And then you have sort of these more um, one chain applications or one application chains, which is really the developers want to tailor the blockchain in a way that specifically fit for, for their applications, not even just use case for their application. Um, so I think they will be they will be there and they will be here to stay. Um, and plus you also have these sort of more permissioned blockchains um, for regulatory reasons um, and even private blockchains, you know, for let's say Starbucks want to launch a blockchain, right? To cater for your use cases. So you have these permit both permissioned um, for regulatory reasons and also uh, private blockchains that also be there. Uh, so you know, to be able to talk to all these different blockchains, I think this more, the, the paradigm is more like the internet, right? So the internet means the sort of the internet network. So there are many, many networks. The internet is just this infrastructure to link everything together. Um, I think that's probably what will happen in the future as well. So there are going to be multiple public blockchains and then, uh, you know, each uh, enabling special use cases, and there are also sort of local blockchains as well and private blockchains. And then they're all going to be interoperable to enable your experience. That, that makes sense. So something you touched on earlier that I want to go back because it was so interesting. You said that you want to, as a store of value, more than just monetary value. And I think you touched on the term a multi-asset store of value. So what other stores of value are there beyond monetary, monetary store of value? Because I think everybody, you know, we get very caught up in the digital gold narrative and, you know, this yeah. is where we're going to park our money. So what other value is there that you can store with proof of work? Yeah. I mean, if you think about, again, if you think about the, the real world um, uh, analogy, right? So your, you know, gold is basically uh, it's alternative currency, right? Uh, so you can, it, it's it's a monetary asset. Um, the reason you want to park there is because you want to hedge against maybe currency inflation and things like that. Now there are other types of assets, right? So for example, your stock certificate, your deed for your land and your house, real estate, um, and then there are, you know, and there are any other financial instruments. Maybe you have uh, a debt, right? And then you can. Uh, you'll be able to earn some yields. Uh, you, you you lend them out and so on and so forth. So for all these, I mean, we can call them just financial assets. Um, so for all these, uh, they're also they also could be very valuable, right? They, and you want to be able to have a place to to store them. Um, and again, this is sort of the real world um, analogy. But for blockchains, everything's tokenized. Um, so you're right for you know. Uh, real estate or your, um, uh, you know, a piece of debt and so on, they can all be represented by tokens. So when we talk about non-monetary value or, you know, multiple set of assets, we really talk about store of the value of the tokens. So, so we tokenize everything basically <laughs> down the road. Yeah. I mean, that's the idea here is that uh, the blockchain is a better is a better mousetrap for almost everything that we do. So inevitably we tokenize it all and Nervos can handle that. Yeah. Yeah. I think tokenization is going to be huge. Um, and it just, it has many of the advantages um, that, you know, the traditional market that won't, uh, won't provide. It makes so much sense. I've had a lot of people on who are obviously big in the NFT space, which you, you mm -hmm. touched on. And I certainly think that 
and not even talking about the art, which is obviously what sort of we have this huge excitement and potentially bubble, I guess, in the space on, on mm-hmm. that side. But mm-hmm. when you talk about your house deed, you know, the things you just yeah. mentioned, it just makes a whole lot more sense to be able to transfer that directly with a single tokenized deed, as opposed to going through all these centralized authorities to, you know, confirm who owns something and who doesn't and make sure that you don't have sort of a double spend with two people claiming ownership. It's very clear if you tokenize it, correct? Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's definitely sort of the, you know, the, the real financial assets in the real world. Um, but there's also, I want to mention that there's something else that's emerging as well. Um, you know, blockchain tech in general is very good for like all the digital, digital assets, right? So, um, you know, in the future, as we go into like, as our next generation spend more time in virtual reality, and then we're going to have more like virtual assets in there than, I mean, you can argue that, I mean, who knows, right? In the future, it could be more valuable than a lot of the real world assets because whenever you spend time, that's whenever you see value is. Um, yeah, I mean, it could be tremendously valuable. I mean, just, I don't know if you have seen, um, uh, the, the movie Red, uh, Ready Player Red, One. I was going to just go. ask you, so we live there in Ready go. Player One, right? We're going to be living in Ready Player One. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I don't think it's far stretch, right? To, to imagine that a world like this. I mean, we're really just going that into that direction a hundred miles per hour. Um, so yeah. So then just, you know, imagine you spend like 15 years and just, you know, getting all the, all the, all the stuff in, in the game. Um, I mean, they could be a tremendous amount of value. Yeah, I, I for the first time I really dug into one of those recently. Uh, yeah. It's called Ter- Terra Virtua. Terra Virtua. I don't know if you're uh, for that, uh-huh. but like, and I was uh-huh. like, you know, in the digital art galleries and building to building. It's, I mean, it's crazy. So yeah. like, it's we're obviously at the very beginning of it, but when you think about what that could look like in the future, that it could look exactly like our existing reality. I mean, look at video games now. Like some of them look so real, you can't even tell that it's a video game. So if you could walk around in that existence and ignore your normal life. There's a lot of people who are going to choose that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, I mean, the video game as an industry uh, has a bigger market than the movie industry. Uh, I think most people don't realize how big it is because again, yeah. it's mostly, you know, dominated by, by younger folks and, you know, spending the time and they tend to stay in their own uh, community and, and so on, but it's a huge market and it's growing really, really fast. I mean, there are gamers on YouTube who make more money than the biggest Hollywood stars by just playing video games with people watching them. Right. So that is a more profitable form of entertainment than the biggest Hollywood blockbusters for the biggest actors in Hollywood. Absolutely. Yeah. You got it. It's so crazy when you think about it that way. And you just see those tip jars just ring, 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 ring. I mean, people <laughs> absolutely love it. So I think that, yeah, I think that that's a very, what, what maybe used to seem like a far-fetched future has become mm-hmm. almost a foregone conclusion. Like that yeah. is just where we're happening. Yeah. So, and, and so what you're building is equipped to basically store all of that value. Yeah, I mean that's right because uh, the, the fundamental. I mean, people are you know free to check our economic model, but the fundamentally, what you need is a native token uh, of the blockchain that can capture all the value of the crypto assets on the blockchain, and then that's it right there, right? So, for most, just for any other blockchains, the native token is 
you know, is view as money, as view as, you know, the, the way to pay transactions and so on and so forth. But it has no relationship with the value of the assets running on the blockchain. Uh, and we're the only one that uh, build economic model that have the native value can capture the value of uh, the tokens on the blockchain. So the more, the more in demand, the more expense, you know, higher value of these uh, assets are, then it automatically drive up the, the, the price for the native token. And uh, we think that's very, very important. Again, going to the Bitcoin example, right? So the more expensive all these assets are, you, you need more defense. You need more like military to uh, defend these assets. Uh, you know, sometimes we use the analogy of, like think about like a, you have a small city, right? So what, how do you build a city so people are, are willing to put their valuables in the city, right? So you can say right. this city, the store value city. How do you do that? Well, you have to make sure that if the market value for the stuff that's storing the city increases, the city can automatically increase the military spend. That relationship has to be there. Uh, so how do you do that, right? So basically... Um, if, if, if you look at just about any other blockchain, they use sales tax. Again, we're going to make analogies here, right? They right. use sales tax to pay for military spending, to pay yes. for the budget. <laughs> yes, there you go. Yeah, transactions, right. right? Transaction, that's basically a sales tax. When you transact, you pay a little bit of uh, fees, right? Um, but with Nervos, uh, the equivalent is we use property tax to pay for military spend. And, um, and then the land price it's sensitive enough that the, there's more demand to store things here, then the land price will go up. And the land is exactly uh, the native token. Um, so you can think about our native token, that representation for the space. You know, uh, For a blockchain, you have limited space you can store stuff in. Um, and then a unit of space is our native token. So the more demand people want to store things here, then they will drive up the land price. And then we use land tax or property tax to pay for military spending. Therefore, you know, the more demand it is, then the land will be worth more. And then the miners will be able to um, increase security because they're paid by like a unit of land, so to speak. So interesting. That's a great analogy. I think you really just uh, simplified it well. Um, you know, the higher sort of uh, top concepts that maybe would be hard for someone to understand that that's very easy to understand for anyone. Yeah. Property value goes up, property taxes go up, you know, you get more services. That's it. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's how, that's how a city ideally is supposed to work. They never do because they waste all of your money on uh, stupid things, <laughs> but, but that is theoretically how, how it's supposed to work. And mm -hmm. that makes more sense now why you're so focused on proof of work and sort of replicating the, the Bitcoin model because you can make any argument you want about any other chain, but the one thing it always comes back to for Bitcoin is security, right? Absolutely. There's no, there's no comparison. There's no parallel. Um, there's security. There's also this, um, you know, Bitcoin is, uh, I think what people don't, a lot of people don't value enough is open participation or censorship resistance, right? So they go, they go hand in hand uh, as a Bitcoin or POW blockchain. You can show up with the mining machine and you can participate in the consensus process. Uh, nobody can censor you. Nobody can, can prevent you from joining the network uh, to be a validator. Um, but you can't say that about proof of stake blockchains. Again, people can argue, yeah, you can just buy tokens on the exchange. So, uh, you know, first thing is that, you know, if, 
if the existing token holders don't sell, then you can't, you will not be able to acquire enough amount of tokens. So that's one. But I think the more subtle, even the more sort of um, subtle thing about this is uh, you're joining the network to be a validator in the POS network. Uh, it's, it's a transaction, right? So in other right. words, if you want to join the existing you know, consensus process, you want to join the console, right? That controls the network. The existing console has to agree because you're joining the console itself. It's a transaction, which means it can be censored, right? So the existing, you know, power, you know, power structure can say, you know, it's just going to be us. Nobody else can be part of the yeah. consensus process. And then they just censor every transaction that want to join to become new validators. And that's, that's, that's not just a possibility. I mean, that's in their best interest. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So when you talk about military spending as the corollary, when miners make more money, what are they actually doing to add security to the network and to better protect assets? Yeah. I mean, the POW network is easy, right? It's a hash rate. So, you know, when token price goes up, they make more money and then, you know, the profit margin increases and, you know, they will want to get more. Um, their cost structure and their electricity costs stay the same. So yeah, so more people will come uh, in competition, try to get, you know, in the example of Bitcoin to get- Which inherently Bitcoin. increases security. Yeah, which means more mining machines are going to be running protected network. Ah, makes sense. So what do you say, what, what do you say to people who say that uh, Bitcoin mining is centralized? Well, uh, Bitcoin mining is, uh, again, it's, it's, it's a game of capital, right? It's a game of resources. So it's centralized. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about, you know, this, this, the centralization point. The centralization points are, first of all, mining pools, right? Um, so in Bitcoin, there are somewhere around maybe, uh, I haven't checked, uh, my imagination would be somewhere like a 10 large mining pools. Yeah, I think it, I've heard that like six or seven really yeah, are the, yeah, five you know, control the majority of the hash rate by a tremendous yeah, amount. Yeah. But so yeah. there, that's, that's one point of centralization. And then the other point is the sort of the mining machine manufacturing, right. um, the, 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 yeah, the miners, right, uh, equipment. And then you have, uh, you know, people with access to just cheap electricity, electricity resources. Right. So you yeah. can say those are... Um, you know, potential centralization points. Um, but, you know, my argument around this is it's very difficult to say, you know, the, the, the common argument from centralization is equality, right? But I think that's not a game that crypto is trying to solve. Uh, open participation is. So even you see these centralization points, my argument is that with the proof of work, uh, with the shift of technology, these power structure will change over time. Whoever, like for example, mining pools, mining pools, core competitiveness of mining pool is access to, you know, fast uh, uh, bandwidth, right. uh, broadband, right? For mining uh, machine manufacturing, obviously that's the, the hardware and the, the chip manufacturing capabilities. Um, but all of these will change over time and electricity as well, right? So uh, with the technology changes, uh, we're going to have you know, waves of different, of different uh, uh, players in the game. But with the proof of stake, it's always the amount of tokens. So it could be, I mean, it could be that once a sub, well, small group of um, people monopolizing the network, 
it's very different. It's very difficult to break out of it. It's almost right. impossible to break out of it um, because they don't need continuous investment to maintain their monopoly. Whereas for work, you always need continuous investment. Right. You have to always be evolving ahead. and always be improving. Yeah. And right, proof of stake. They just say, "This is our network." Sorry. Yeah. yeah <laughs> right. And so, yeah, so right. Go ahead. So basically, the argument is that even if it's centralized to a few huge pools. There's still always competition. They're always forced to evolve and improve because anyone can come in and challenge it. And inherently, you know, the technology is accessible to everyone if they can pay for it. And as electricity gets cheaper and solar becomes a thing. And, you know, we've seen uh, electronic grids selling their extra energy back to make up for some of it and things like that. So all of this is evolving towards more competition and not less, which is the opposite of. Uh, proof of stake. It's always evolving, right? Whatever is evolving, then dynamics will change. The power structure will change. And that's good. That's good oh, for the network. That's cool. So I want to dig more uh, deeply into your operations in China. Mm-hmm. Um, I've only been in crypto since late 2016. But in that time, four years, I've probably heard oh. that China has banned crypto, embraced <laughs> crypto, owns their own crypto, uh, you know, every single narrative you could possibly imagine from a government. <laughs> um, yeah. So what is it really like building in China in a space that from the outside looks like you're at risk all the time of some crazy regulation or ban? Yeah, I mean, uh, so... A nervous network, I mean, we have an engineering team in China, but nervous network itself is a, um, a sort of offshore entity, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the government right now is very pro-blockchain technology, uh, mm-hmm. but not, not sort of cryptocurrency. And uh, obviously there's, you know, capital flight and other issues that... Um, uh, you know, the financial, current financial structure. Um, so it's very cautious that way, uh, which is, I mean, if you look at, you know, the stand that's taken by um, other sort of first world countries and it's, it's mostly the same, right? So it's mostly Absolutely. the smaller countries that are very much pro cryptocurrencies. Uh, so they're very cautious. Um, but, you know, the way we look at it is it's, it's a journey, right? Um, so, it just like how internet evolved uh, in the past. It started with local networks. It started with networks that's, you know, within university that would increase productivity, like an intranet. Um, but inevitably those will connect. And then, you know, the power of a public network will then emerge in, into, into the future. So right now, you know, uh, the government is very much supporting blockchain tech in general and there's a lot of permission networks that's coming up and then our team also has very deep roots in this area so we have a lot of partnership that's sort of in the permissioned area uh we also before neurals we built um, uh, a leading solution in the permission block uh, permission blockchain space in china um so yeah but you know as you but as these solutions are built up and there is more and more need to interrupt and there is more and more need to interrupt without trustlessly, basically, right? So when you have, you know, when you have uh, many these of these uh, local blockchain networks, the way, I mean, if you want to connect them like peer to peer, then 
it's going to be almost impossible. It's going right. to explode, right? It's in square, basically. And then, uh, you know, gradually you're going to, people are going to find like a common trustless party uh, that they can all trust and rely on. Uh, so that's what, for interoperability. And then, you know, that's where we want to, we want to build. So yes, we want to support the build up of these blockchains as well. And then, uh, but we want to build the technology that we can seamlessly interrupt with them. Uh, so as the need, you know, as more and more these increase, and then we're going to be um, this facilitator of all these blockchains. Sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto, and it's 100% commission-free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 40 top crypto assets, and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank accounts. So you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they are offering 6.5% interest on Bitcoin and 9.5% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 9.5% interest. And there are no limits or lockups, so your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager in the iTunes or Google Play store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. That's S-C-O-T-T-2-5. That makes perfect sense. So it's interesting. I mean, in China, obviously, we're seeing the digital yuan. They're ahead of the game. They're clearly ahead in understanding the power of blockchain. But like you said, a lot of those, I mean, if it's a closed blockchain network, they almost serve the opposite pur purpose for an individual or for a citizen or for a, per for a person than Bitcoin does, right? Because it's more control, easier mm -hmm. access to your information, less privacy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's kind of like blockchain can be used for good or blockchain can be used for bad. And for a government and our central bank digital currency, it's actually a very powerful tool for a central bank or government to make sure that they know exactly what their citizens are doing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's always the case, right? So whenever a new technology comes, and then there's always two forces, like you said, so one force is the current power structure is trying to utilize the technology to, for their own goals and then mostly to maintain the current power structure, right? So this is more like for productivity. Um, so you see like in blockchain, you have, um, you always have like these banks and then, you know, big companies try to utilize the blockchain to say, oh, this is great. Of t this is a great technology. Let's just use the technology to increase the productivity uh, to make, to keep doing what we're doing, but make it cheaper, make it better, make it JP, you know, bigger. Market. JP Morgan coin, right? Yeah, 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 you have it. So yeah. you always have that side. And then you have the other side, which is like the more typically more grassroots and technologist driven and um, community driven and so on. And that's like organic growth. And then uh, it tends to grow something that entirely shift the paradigm of technology, right? Okay, internet is the best example that we can have. Um, so I think for blockchain, it's the same as well. Um, so in a company, yeah. So in a country like China, then it's very likely, or the United States as well, um, that they would embrace the technology because it's so important, but they could still be very anti Bitcoin in theory. Yeah. I don't think that they are, but, but, you know, yeah, anything, I mean, look, anything that changes the current power structure, the, 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 the people that benefit from it will not like it. Um, and it's, it's, it's always going to be like that. Um, so they're going to put a lot of investment to, in the industry to, for the technology, but which is good for us, which is good because 
what that will do is to increase the visibility of the tech uh, of the industry and train just tremendous amount of tech uh, of developers that are familiar with the tech and can be, be able to build uh, more interesting things. So it'll increase how many people are building on it and are knowledgeable. And then, I mean, you yeah. could also make the argument that it will expose it to your average person who would then want to become a programmer or, yeah. or be a part of it. Or even that we have these like basic barriers to entry for an average person to use Bitcoin. They're scared of opening a wallet. They're, they don't want to custody it. They don't understand it. They see these like, you know, seed phrases and these long addresses and they just don't want yeah. to touch it. But yeah, if blockchain becomes inevitable and becomes a part of everything, people are going to be forced to become comfortable with those things. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so what do you make of central bank digital currencies then? And how do they affect what you're doing? I mean, obviously they're not changing your plans, but do you think that they will be, you know, a, a positive or a negative for, for the space as we see it now? Yeah, I think, uh, I think any step uh, towards like a more digital side of it and move the industry forward and have more people using the technology is a, it's a positive step for the industry, right? So at this point, we need education campaigns to talk about what digital currency is um, to, uh, you know, have the infrastructure, like everybody should have a digital wallet, digital currency wallet, so they know how to spend and, you know, that. Um, so I think all those are going to be moving towards that direction. And then uh, at some point people will realize, okay, who, you know, who controls my, my, my assets, right? Who is in custody of my money? Um, I've known, I've, I've known well, and, and, you know, I know the technology, I know how to, how to go around and, you know, key some digital cash. Now, which one should I keep? Right. So that's the evolution of, 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 uh, uh, of this story, I think. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I think at first it's a threat, but then people become comfortable with transacting digitally and having a wallet and they realize there's a better alternative and they inevitably go towards that. Um, yeah. so China is ahead. They understand the power of blockchain. Maybe the United States is doing it and just not telling us, but it seems like as far as blockchain, you've got like a sunny island over there and we're over here on the top of Mount Everest freezing our asses off. So do you think that the United States is way behind and that it's going to be problematic for us? Uh, I think, yeah, I think so. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, uh, it's just, you know, in the past several years, the, the center of innovation, the center of uh, adoption is really not in the U.S., um, so, uh, I mean, I, I still hope our Congress can recognize it and then with a the new administration, I, you know, I, maybe things will change, but we'll see. Why, why is the United States so far behind? Is it, is it a fear or is it just too big and too slow? Are they dismissive of the technology? Because it seems like anyone with a brain would assume that, Hey, you know, I don't know how my cell phone works, but I use my cell phone. I don't know how the internet works, but I use the internet. I don't really know how the blockchain works, but it's going to be running everything, right? So why yeah. don't they get that? Again, the U.S. is the major beneficiary of the current power structure, right? The current financial system, the U.S. is in the middle. It's in the center of it, um, you know, to... Um, political size, the, you know, the financial system for certain reasons, for, uh, you know, geopolitics, for, um, 
And, you know, for any reasons, the U.S. has the absolute power to do so. Um, so, you know, it's, I, I don't think it's in the U.S. interest to push for a, a brand new power structure, a, a new financial system. Um, yeah, so that's... that's so uh, they're not stupid. They just don't want to see it happen, obviously. Uh, unless, so they're, being, they're dragging their feet purposefully. Yeah, unless I think, unless there is going to be a path that they can use the technology for their own dominance, right? But um, you would think that a, that a digital dollar would, would, would be that. I think so. And that's exactly all the, with the Facebook, Libra, you know, fiasco and all the back and forth and all that. So now I think Libra will probably launch pretty soon with, you know, basic digital dollar, uh, digital US dollar instead of basket of currencies. And that's the main hurdle. And you'll wonder why that is, right? So with digital dollar, you're basically, you know, publicizing, you're pushing dollar everywhere in the world. And that's yeah. to the benefit of the U.S. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> right, and I mean, they even went as far as to rebrand it, right? It's no longer Libra, it's DM or something. And yeah, they, something. And they basically have sure. like, uh, they've had the advertising agencies and PRs are hard at work removing the Facebook name from everything to make it seem like it's more of a collaborative effort, but it's still Libra. But so now, like you said, it's literally just a stable coin. It's just another stable coin. It's a stable coin packed to US dollar. Right, uh, it's not independent stablecoin. It's not a basket of currencies. Um, you know, again, this is, and that wouldn't have any problem with the regulations in the U.S. No, but I mean, what, but it's also there's there's nothing new and innovative now, right? They made this big deal about changing the world with Libra and this currency, and you know, obviously, you would transact on Facebook with billions of people, and it would be mm-hmm. easier and less friction. And now we just sort of have Tether. <laughs> yeah. It's a Facebook endorsed um, US, US dollar stablecoin. Um, yeah. I think the impact is more going to be, I mean, the impact has never been uh, technology, right? The impact is going to be the distribution. Uh, so we'll see how many people will jump up on this when it's ready. Um, but again, I think anything that I can increase adoption of technology, it's good. And People in the end, you know, things will happen. And then, you know, if centralized entities are really not that good, as we say, there, there could be issues, then people will see. And then there's going to be choice. Um, so it's good for the industry, I think. We just need more people to recognize the potential of the technology. Right. Well, I mean, we're at a point in history right now where it'd be hard not to recognize it, right? I mean, 2020 has obviously had its challenges, but... The, the silver lining, obviously, is that Bitcoin has emerged sort of as a shining star, seeing mm-hmm. corporations and billionaires and the store of value narrative, which, by the way, it's hilarious because in March, like everybody was saying store of narrative, uh, you know, that that was dead. The store of value narrative it went yeah. down with everything else. And then obviously sort of Phoenix from the ashes. But do you think it will continue now that we've established this huge bull run? We're seeing the Michael Saylors and the micro strategies and Paul Tudor Jones, everyone, right? They're all mm. Elon Musk and Michael Saylor on Twitter talking about Bitcoin, right? Uh, with memes. Um, do you think <laughs> it like we're more firmly established now that Bitcoin is more firmly established as an asset and that we should now really have that narrative in place. Yeah. I think Bitcoin, you know, um, every time Bitcoin goes down and up, uh, you know, a different, um, had another major run, uh, Bitcoin is just that that much more likely to stay forever. 
uh, and that's you know that's the power of the uh, of the Bitcoin network. Um, it's simple. It's 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 easy to understand, um, and it has a great narrative. Uh, you know, it's the first block, it's the first cryptocurrency, and um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just more and more likely that Bitcoin will be with us forever. I love it. <laughs> I mean, I, you had to wonder in March earlier this year when we saw it drop yeah. so aggressively in the, you know, in, in that moment that everyone expected it, if you were a Bitcoin maximalist to shine, there was that time. I mean, were you scared there for a little while? Did you, was your belief shaken at all? <sighs> I mean, that's probably, I don't know how many times this has played for me. Yeah, it just, I think you've been, been around a long for, time. Yeah. You've been around for a long time, man. This, this is hardly the first time. I mean, I, I, I really can't remember. Um, uh, you know, every time it's, it feels like this. I mean, this time, um, really, it's like one or two years that Bitcoin has been down. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, in the last several cycles, I mean, Bitcoin could be in the ditch for three years. Sure. And um, yeah, but it, but it, it will bounce back. Um, so that would imply that we're kind of just at the beginning of this, right? I mean, we've been, it's, it's been winter since 2000, <clears throat> late 2017, effectively, I mean, and, and through earlier in 2020. So, I mean, if you even look at the cycles, it seems like we're still, to use the uh, meme statement from the community, we're very early, right? We're still very early. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, this is like my, when I first joined the industry, obviously I really started with the Bitcoin um, that, you know, I only saw two possibilities of Bitcoin, right? One is that it's going gonna, it's gonna to go to zero. And then the other possibility is going to be really, really valuable, right? I don't know how valuable it is, but, um, but I think it's going to be one of the two. And like I said, I mean, the longer time Bitcoin stays above zero, then the longer time it goes, it's possible that, it will go to the other direction. Right. So what I never even asked, what got you into Bitcoin in the first place? I know you have a long history as a coder and I mean, yeah. you had a platform before that's really incredible. And that could probably, honestly, we could have probably a whole other podcast talking about, uh, you know, your, your uh, launch school and teaching people to code and make more than a college, ed, you know, a college yeah. graduate uh, without going to college. But you've, it's safe to say that you probably were pretty early, certainly on the coding side. But when did you get into Bitcoin and realize that this is where you wanted to spend your time and, and energy? Um, I think uh, it, it was pretty early. I think it's 20. Uh, well, for me, right. So going through the financial crisis last time, like 2009, 2010, um, really started to, it got me started to be interested in like economics and finance and, you know, read a lot of stuff of why things were happening. Um, and, uh, so, and also trained as an engineer. Uh, so I have a uh, intrinsic, you know, uh, curiosity in, uh, like new ways of distributed, distributed tech. Uh, so when Bitcoin came around, it's really, you know, this sort of this joining force of these two, uh, two directions, um, and then uh, I think it was very obvious what they wanted to do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think for me, that was just, you know, it, it was when I found Bitcoin, it was very much, a, uh, you know, people say, call the bug, right? So it's kind of like that. Um, yeah, so um, 
But, you know, we started building Nervous Network uh, quite a few years later uh, in early 2018. And this is, you know, where we find, where I found that, you know, I no longer wanted just to be a um, uh, sort of enthusiast or I wanted to be uh, like a builder of this space as well. So that's already 2018. Yeah, I want to touch on it. So I talked about, I just mentioned launch school and I find it so interesting. So you basically, I mean, maybe you should give give the background of it, but I did read yeah. that, uh, you know, your graduates, I guess, or the people who went through the course were making an average of $110,000 a year coming out. So that, I think it sort of touches on the idea that college is clearly sort of dying and there's a better way, right? Um, certainly in 2020, when people are paying Harvard rates to sit at home and watch classes on their computer. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, college definitely has their places, right? I think for... If you want to be a doctor, that, a lawyer. Yeah, I mean, for, also for kids that don't know what they want to do. And for a lot of high school graduates, uh, they probably don't have a clear picture of what they want to become. So college, this, you know, it's a great place that you can... It's expensive, but it's a place that you can go and find your next... Yeah. I mean, that's, I went to the university of Pennsylvania, you know, it's a yeah. Ivy league school, insanely oh, expensive. And I, and I went, is that where you're really? <laughs> you can? Yeah. Oh, wow. Hey, <laughs> nice. I graduated in 99, go Quakers, but I went there to find myself and that was probably the most expensive place on earth to go find myself. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's because everybody, everybody else went there as well. So that's the natural choice. But I think uh, like for long school, for example, we started and then, you know, for people that know what they want to become, they know they want to become a professional software engineer. Um, there's definitely a much, much more efficient path to get there. And because, you know, that industry is very much meritocracy. I mean, if you can produce, you know, working products, and then it's not so difficult to judge where your level is um, uh, for, uh, for a peer. Um, so once you have that, I mean, it's much easier that you can just level up to that, to that level instead of, you know, spending four years in college. Right. And like I said, I mean, if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or head directly to wall street, that pen degree is more, I mean, it doesn't even matter what you learned, right. As long as you have the diploma and you didn't fail. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that you actually learned the requisite skills as well as you could have for, for, you know, what you inevitably want to do. It's funny. You know, I, I talk to blockchain companies all the time. We yeah. talk about getting people jobs. Nobody asked where you went to college in this industry, right? They just, you have other ways to prove your skills. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the key, right? So, you know, when diploma is no longer just a proxy of your values and your skills for a lot of industry. I mean, there's no other way to, there's no easy way to do that, but for uh, software engineering, it's very simple. Um, you know, just, Hey, you know, build this project in three days and come back to me and you know, we'll see what you can build. Um, and then we'll have a conversation. I can pretty much gauge where you are. So what age should we be teaching our kids to code? Huh? Sorry? So what age oh, should what we be age? teaching our kids to code? I mean, I've... Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I'm maybe a little bit controversial here. I, I think kids should start with playing. Um, I, I agree. I, yeah. It just, you know, uh, playing computer games, I think it's great to getting into, uh, you know, liking computers. And then, I mean, that's how I got started, right? So I started playing video games, computer games. And then I think about, okay, how can I cheat? <laughs> how can I cheat? And then you started yeah, to sure. learn all about just, oh, I need to use this. How about memory management? How do you peek into, you know, the loading of the game and then things like that. Uh, and then I think about how do I program my own games? And 
that sort of drove me to start programming. And uh, it was very early days and the games are very simple, but uh, it was fun. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, it taught me a lot about programming in general. Um, um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I love the games, but I never got into the programming part. I don't know what year, you know, you were born, but I started, uh, my first gaming was on a Commodore 64. Oh, yeah. I think I'm maybe a few years I'm, after you. I'm 44 years old, so yeah. Yeah, but, I'm a few yeah. years after you. I started with Apple. <laughs> that yeah, but then, yeah, then eventually we got like the Macintosh, you know, with the small yeah. screen and, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was playing computer games from when I was a little kid. I agree with you. I mean, now, of course, they say screen time is terrible for your children and we're going to destroy their brains. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's a trade-off there. Interactive is better than just one-way reception of yeah, TV. Yeah, so, that, so that, that's so interesting. But let's assume that our kids start with play. I mean, at what age is it reasonable for a child to really start coding so that you know by the time they're of college age, they could theoretically you know, skip and go straight into a competitive job? Um, I think maybe, you know, high elementary school yeah. age and, yeah. uh, that's, you know, when they're more than enough to, but even then I think, you know, programming at that age is probably still felt like play, right? So yeah. you don't teach them sort of the workhorse sort of industry languages and let them play in uh, coding that. I mean, that would be kind of boring. You just make it You're a still, game. Yeah. Just make it a game. Right. So it's. You know, it's the same sort of logic and problem solving, but then, you know, the environment is more like exploration and expression and game and play. Uh, so that will get them interested. Um, and then, uh, you know, again, it doesn't have to be like a very math focused and um, or beautiful right. website. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to stand <laughs> over them with the ruler, to... slapping them on the knuckles every time they code <laughs> yeah. something wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. I find it very hard not to do that with my daughter when she's practicing piano, but then when I just leave her and let her go for like an hour, she just has yeah. fun and whatever, and I'm standing over her yelling and she's getting out wrong. So I probably could learn something. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the coming years, obviously crypto moves at the speed of light. So like a year mm -hmm. in this industry is 10 years in any other industry, but like what yeah. does Nervos look like in a year, five years, 10 years, what are, what are the, you know, the biggest plans and what you see coming? Yeah. So, uh, so last year, you know, we spent, uh, we spent a lot of time building up the infrastructure. Um, so now, you know, next year, I think it's going to be the year of adoption for Nervos where, uh, you should be able to see more applications launching on Nervos. Then, you know, we're going to build more, um, uh, sort of solutions uh, for specific use cases where it's not just the technology, but it's going to be a, um, you know, multiple pieces all fit together to enable certain, uh, you know, features. And, um, you know, we're already seeing, uh, you know, tremendous demand for this and then tremendous uh, interest for developers want to build unique applications. I think that's the other thing that we want to enable is to be able to build unique applications. Uh, things that you cannot build anywhere else uh, on Nervos. And then we talk about um, interoperability before in this podcast. I think be able to, any application built on Nervos blockchain is basically multi-chain apps. So you'll be able to access multiple blockchains, right? So you build a DeFi app, you can, you, you build, let's say you build an ICO, right? You, you do ICO uh, on Ethereum, you can only use ETH and tokens to invest in ICOs, but here you can use any assets. You can use Bitcoin, ETH, you can use, um, you know, Polkadot and, you know, Atom, all other cryptocurrencies. 
right. to, for those for those applications. Um, I think those are going to be important. Um, so it's like uh, the movie Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. Right from our childhood. <laughs> no, so, you, but you focused more on product in the past and making sure that the blockchain was up to snuff, and now it's time for adoption. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, the next year it's going to be basically adoption. And and what kind of um, apps are you looking for to be sort of the first and biggest, um, you know, built and and that are likely to be adopted? Yeah. So we talk about you know cross chain apps. Uh, which I think will fill a void. Uh, you know, currently, this, this type of apps you can only see in centralized exchanges. Um, so basically, you know, you log to centralized exchange and then you, you have access to all the currencies and then you can do like lending and then, you know, all that in centralized exchanges. But um, for on the decentralized side, you can only build within, you know, segregation of different blockchain ecosystems. Um, so we want to have a decentralized platform, but you can have access to all different assets and cryptocurrencies and build apps that um, natively can support all these. And user yeah. experience it also feels seamless. Um, so I think, you know, I think that will be an important step uh, for us. Um, and then from there, uh, you know, really, we, we're also going to be looking into the Web3 um, space. And then, you know, there's a lot of, sort of internet companies in China that, that are interested in uh, looking into how to utilize blockchain tech to, uh, you know, expand their user base and, you know, add interesting, uh, they talk about NFT. I think that's, that, I think huge. that's going to be a trend. That's going to be huge and not just about, you know, arts and collectibles. And I think that is a pretty big, big piece as well. But uh, I think the ability to tokenize, um, future income streams and make a financial instruments. I think that adds another dimension of like general social networks. And yeah, we saw it here. I mean, so there's a guy in the NBA, Spencer Dinwiddie, who like tokenized his, you know, salary and future earnings and you can basically buy a part of his career. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is, again, um, if it is something off chain, it's a little bit harder, right? So it's not like it can be done. And for reputable people, you can probably trust them. They will, enforce these contracts, but for pure digital income, uh, digital creation, this is much easier to do so. Um, and then we're already seeing a lot of sort of digital creation, and, um, you know, that can, that can be part of that. Um, so yeah, so we look forward. So it's very exciting. So you've basically built something that will allow people to do whatever they want. So we just got to bring them in and, and let them do it. But, uh, that, yeah, that nobody else built. can, Right. And, and it's not siloed off like almost every other project. Mm -hmm. It's really, really cool. So where should people uh, after this follow you and, and follow the, the, the pro progress of Nervos? Uh, yeah, I'm KN Wang, uh, you know, on, on Twitter, K-N-W-A-N-G. And to follow Nervos Network, um, just find us on Twitter. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I really appreciate it. And I think it's so interesting what you guys are doing and, if the space continues like this, I think that, uh, you know, the rising tide will hopefully float, float all boats as they say, right? Yep. 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 Pushing the industry forward. I think that's why we're here. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. All right. Thanks, Scott. Let's go.